Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Today, we have a new episode from our series with the princesses from Reinvented Magazine's Princesses with Power Tools Calendar. Reinvented is a magazine for girls and women in STEM, and the Princesses with Power Tools Calendar features real women in the sciences and trades. The Hazard Girls podcast has partnered with Reinvented to share some of these inspirational women's stories. Today, we've got our February princess, Kimberly Fiak. Kimberly Fiak is an experimental pathology PhD student at the University of Iowa. She has a BS in neuroscience and psychology and recently completed her MS in pathology. Kimberly uses human stem cells to answer questions about how the tau protein contributes to different types of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. In addition to her research, Kimberly assists with the Iowa Neurobank Corps, a brain tissue and stem cell repository at the University of Iowa. My daughter and I also know from the Princesses with Power Tools calendar that she has at least three cats and a bunny named Thumper. Yes. (laughs) I was remembering. I was going from memory. Yes. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here, especially because it's February and that means it's my month in the calendar. I know. It works so perfectly. I didn't even plan that. My daughter and I were last night. I was like, oh, we had forgotten to change it. We're like, oh, we get to flip through or a couple of days ago, maybe. And we flipped the page and I said, oh my gosh, it's Kimberly. I can't believe it. So we were really excited and she has some questions that she wanted me to ask you, which we'll get to at the end. But let's start out by talking about the calendar for a minute. Are you dressed up as any specific princess in the calendar? Yes. So I'm supposed to be Rapunzel. Tangled is actually my go-to movie when I'm sick. So when I'm sick and like home from work with like the sniffles, I like cuddle up on the couch and I put on Tangled because I love the songs and it's just like a very feel-good movie. So I was really excited to kind of apply my story and about the work I do to Tangled because I feel like it meshed really well. I thought so too. And I got the reference, but my daughter thought it was Cinderella. You were being Cinderella. So I just like let it go because she hasn't seen Tangled and she doesn't know about Rapunzel yet. (laughs) She's eight. So I think she's old enough to watch Tangled now. Oh yeah. My mom didn't know either. So it was okay. I sent her a copy of the calendar and I was like, look, this is so great. And she was like, who are you? (laughs) Ouch. No. You know, all that matters is that like, if you've seen Tangled and you get it, that's great. If not, maybe you'll watch Tangled now. Who knows? So well, we're definitely going to watch it now. And but how did you connect it with your work that you do? How did you connect the princess? So I love the very first song in Tangled where Rapunzel is doing all of these chores and stuff. And it feels like time must be flying. And then she's like, it's only 715. And I felt like that is my life every day at work. I'll, feel like I'll be doing a million things. And then I'll sit down at my desk. and I'll be like, it's been 10 minutes. So I think that really connected with me. And then she talks a lot about wanting to see the glowing lanterns. And that's her dream. And there's a song later in the movie where she's talking to other people about their dream. And I really connected with that because I was told by many people that 
being a scientist and that being my dream was stupid and that I wouldn't be able to achieve it. So I really connected with the fact that she wants to support everybody and finding their dream. And that's kind of my goal with my platform and also just being a role model in science. So I connected that. And then of course, my neurons do glow. I can add things to them to see them glow under the microscope. So I felt like that fit with the glowing lanterns. That does sound perfect. And I wanted to move on to talk about your background, but I can't because what you said was, you know, it kind of grabbed me by the heartstrings there about being told that you couldn't make it in science. Did someone tell you that growing up or is that something that you've just heard that other people have been told? No. So this actually did happen to me, particularly when I was in college. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder my freshman year of college, which wasn't really a surprise. I have a family history of it, but I really struggled to manage that. I was on my own as an adult for the very first time in my life. And also had this brand new diagnosis of a mental illness, which came with medication and therapy and all of these things. And I wasn't doing the best job managing. And I went to professors and asked for help. And there was a professor who told me that I was just making excuses. I was a bad student. I had other grad students in my life that I had worked for that told me that I would never make it as a scientist because I struggled with math. I struggled with some basic science concepts just because my brain works differently with my mental illness. And so those kinds of challenges were really what they looked at and said, you can't be successful because of this, rather than saying, we may need to just provide you with different support. You may need different things to be successful. They just said, you're not going to make it. So that was really, really difficult. But being a scientist has been my dream my whole life. So when we talk about dreams in the movie, like that has always been my dream. So I took that as an opportunity to say, I'm never going to convince you otherwise. So I'm just going to work on believing in myself and using that as my motivation to achieve this dream rather than spending all my time and energy trying to convince you that I'm good enough. I'm going to know I'm good enough and just go for it myself. So it doesn't really matter what other people think or what they're saying to you. It's not going to affect what you know about yourself and what you know that you can try to do. Exactly. It was really hard to hear that from other people because they're people you look up to and you value their opinion, especially when you're an undergrad. You really look to the professors and the older students for guidance. But I knew in my heart that this is what I was meant to do. And so I just was like, okay, maybe these couple people don't believe in me, but there's got to be other people that do. And sure enough, I went to grad school and found a whole host of people that support me and really found my way into being a scientist. So it's really hard at first, but I've learned that a couple people saying one thing is not, you know, the definitive be all to end all about like what you can and can't do. Like you're the best judge of what you're capable of. Well, that just really speaks to, you know, your character and your inner strength. But I'm just wondering where you got that inner strength, because I think so many people would hear, especially a professor, you know, say something like that to them and they might give up. Where did that come from? Yeah, I had to have strength at a very young age. When I was very young, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. My parents got divorced. We moved. So I had kind of a lot of tumultuous things going on when I was younger. And I feel like that is kind of where I developed resilience. And then when I was in high school, my father unexpectedly passed away. And so that kind of just added to the resilience and then the determination I had to, you know, prove to other people that despite these setbacks, I've overcome worse. So like not managing my health well in the beginning, like I had overcome so much worse in my life that like I knew I would be able to figure it out eventually. And I think that's kind of where that came from. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your father and I'm sorry to hear about the things that you've been through, but your strength is so inspiring. And thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. I think that will make a huge difference in a lot of people's 
lives and perception of themselves and, you know, like little bits of information like that, that you're sharing, it might only take a few seconds to share it, but it could really change someone's life. Definitely. And I feel like particularly with mental health in science and STEM, I feel like a lot of people are discouraged from it because they struggle with their mental health. And that's really my goal is to show people like I'm doing it. So like a lot of people like will say like, oh, you can do it. But I'm like, I'm here. I'm showing you I have this mental health challenge. I talk about it openly. And I'm also doing my job and, you know, achieving my dreams and making it come true. So I want to be an example and showing people that like, it really is possible. It's not all just talk. Yeah. Well, we did touch on your background some, and it sounds like you've had a very challenging childhood. Where did you grow up? And do you want to share a little bit about, you know, your background in sciences and how you got interested in science? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Arizona and I will say I did have some troubling times, but I did have great times in my childhood too. So (laughs) it wasn't all full of of, of bad things. I did have, I had two great homes after my parents got divorced and a great 13 years with my dad. And so, yeah, so I grew up in Arizona. Arizona. And I always knew I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't really know what that meant. So I remember being really young and people asked me what you want to do. And I would say, I'm a, I want to be a scientist. And they'd be like, what does that mean? And I was like, I don't know. Like I had no concept of what scientists do, but it just seemed what I wanted to do. And then after my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I was like, I'm going to cure cancer. Like I'm five. I'm going to do it. Nobody else has been able to do it, but they're not me. And like, that's where I'm going to do it. And like, that was confidence that I wish I still had. But that's kind of what started it. And as I got older, I remember learning about different types of science in school. So for a while, I wanted to do chemistry. I wanted to do drug development and drug design. In high school, I loved my AP chemistry classes. So I was really set on that. And then when it came time to go to college and apply for school, I applied to every school basically as a chemistry major, with the exception of the university I attended, the University of Texas at Dallas. I applied as a neuroscience major with no background in neuroscience whatsoever, no idea really what that meant, but I was like, brains sound cool. So I could probably learn about this for four years, like no idea what I was going to do with it because I was still kind of set on chemistry, but I applied and I was a neuroscience major all four years and now I work in neuroscience research, so... I don't do anything chemistry. Chemistry kind of scares me now. So, but it's kind of cool to see how it changed. I also really had an interest in forensic science for a while as well that I've kind of weaved into to my current work. Okay. So you chose this major before being diagnosed with your own bipolar disorder? Yes. So I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder in high school. And I kind of had a suspicion that eventually I might be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The likelihood was incredibly high because I had a very strong family history of it. If not that, at least something else. And I had seen it with other family members that had gone through similar things. So I was kind of anticipating that I would have some additional challenges and I already had struggled with my OCD. But I actually was not interested and have never been surprisingly interested in mental health research. I think it's super important. I commend and love and respect all the people who do it. But that was never my passion. My passion was always disease research. And I know that that can be kind of confusing, but more like diseases that physically change the brain rather than mental health and mental illness tend to be more of the way that your brain communicates and talks to different areas of your brain with signaling. I'm more interested in how like the brain is physically changed by disease. And when we think of things like cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, things like that. Okay. Now, can you, since you just started explaining it a little bit, maybe you can go a tiny bit deeper into your research and what, you know, in layman's term, layperson's terms, like 
going a little bit in depth about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So my degree is in experimental pathology, which I tell everyone is a very fancy way to say that I use different types of techniques to answer questions about disease. So pathology is just the study of disease. And most people do pathology research without realizing it. Anybody who's studying any disease is doing pathology research. But I'm really interested because of my neuroscience background in diseases that affect the brain, so neuropathology. And in specifically, I study neurodegeneration, so diseases that cause neurons to die. Well, actually, neurons die, and as a result, you have a disease. So things like Alzheimer's disease is the most probably well-known, but I work on others called frontotemporal dementias. So there's a protein in these diseases called tau. And this tau protein is a normal protein in our brain. We have it. It does lots of great things. It helps our neurons communicate with each other. It's awesome. We don't want to get rid of it. But somewhere along the line, tau can have issues where it breaks off of the axon where it's supposed to be doing its normal job. And the more that happens, the more free-floating taus there are. You can kind of think about it as like... If you have little like drops of food coloring or something in water, the more there are, the more they blend together. And it's kind of the same way with tau. So the more free-floating tau there are, the more they stick to each other. They find each other. Those create what we call aggregates. And those aggregates fill up the cell so much that it can't do what it's supposed to do and the cell dies. And so then the more cells you have dying, the more problems you have. And that's why in a lot of these diseases, you have dementia. So the areas of neurons where they're dying, those affect cognition. They can also affect other areas depending on what disease you have. And we know that in Alzheimer's disease, this happens in neurons. In frontotemporal dementias, this actually happens in other cell types. So you have astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, which are two helper cells in the brain. They also accumulate this tau protein. And so my research is trying to understand why one person who's having problems with tau would get Alzheimer's and another person would get a frontotemporal dementia. How did you choose this as your area, the specific... Well, so I did an internship when I was in college and I worked in a neuropathology lab that ran a brain and body donation program. And that was the first time I did an autopsy, the first time I held a human brain and I was hooked. I was like, this is the most incredible thing. Why is everybody not doing this? (laughs) Uh, When I went to college, I had kind of after that experience, I had that goal in mind that that's really what I wanted to do. And so I was getting ready to apply for grad schools, and I was kind of told again that I would never make it to grad school, so I shouldn't bother applying for a PhD. So I listened that time. In hindsight, I'm still glad I listened because that was the right call. I did a master's degree first, which gave me a lot of confidence as a scientist. And so I started working with the PI that I work under now, Dr. Marco Hefty, who studies tau and He studied a lot more about tau protein and development because it's really important for normal functioning. But as I worked more and more in his lab, I started having all these questions about why tau was doing one thing in one context, but doing something different in another. And I was really curious as to why some people would get sick with one disease and another. And, you know, Alzheimer's disease is huge in the field of research. There's a lot of money and a lot of researchers looking at it, but some of these lesser known dementias like frontotemporal dementias are not getting as much attention. And so I really wanted to know, like, is there a way that we can find a link between what's going on between these two diseases where if we can come up with therapeutics for one, it might help another. And so that's kind of what got me interested in it. There was all these diseases that were happening that nobody really had an explanation for, but There had to be something different about them where you're not seeing the same disease process in both. Oh, that's fascinating. 
And this might be a political question, but why is it that Alzheimer's is getting more funding? I think it's, you know, one of the leading causes of death. It's just very prevalent. It affects, I think, just a large it's just affects more people. I think part of it too is that people are more familiar with it. And so people want to put money into finding cures for diseases that they're comfortable and familiar with. And then the more that has grown, the more people have put more money into that. And that's not to say we shouldn't be funding Alzheimer's disease research. We absolutely should. It's just there are other diseases that are also caused by the same protein that don't seem to be getting as much attention. And I think that's just because maybe people don't know about them. A lot of people seem to know someone with Alzheimer's disease, but maybe not as many people know someone with a frontotemporal dementia. And so they just might not know how important it is to be funding that research as well. Mm -hmm. And in your ideal world, what are the implications of your work? What are the clinical implications? Oh, yeah. I mean, in my ideal world, I would love to discover something that would reverse this tau aggregation because that would become essentially the most important therapeutic target. So with Alzheimer's disease, you have another protein that causes disease beta amyloid. And that probably people might be familiar with because of the recent drug that came out that was targeted at beta amyloid. That was kind of, was FDA approved, but they were on the fence about the approval and it was kind of a whole big deal. Um, and they found that using that drug didn't reduce cognitive decline. So people still experienced the cognitive decline but they reduced the amount of beta amyloid in their brain. And that was really additional evidence to kind of what we already know as tau researchers, that it's the tau accumulation that's actually leading to the cognitive decline. The biggest problem with Alzheimer's disease is, is memory loss. That's a big symptom that people want to cure. They want to prevent people from losing their memory. So if we can figure out a way to stop tau from accumulating and stop tau from killing neurons, we could potentially protect people's memories hopefully indefinitely, maybe at least just for longer. This is amazing. And thank you for sharing all about your research. And a lot of this, so I spoke to a PhD student in the Hazard Girls group. I thought she could maybe help me out a little bit because this isn't really my area. So I was like, you know, what should I ask Kimberly? And so she was, you know, talking a little bit about the clinical implications. And that's why I thought to ask you about that. And I'm glad I did. And she also was asking a question that she had for you was, the following. She said, have you encountered any interpersonal challenges in academia and how have you managed those? And she said she's found that the supervisor-student relationship can be unique and also difficult to navigate at times because it's like they're your boss, but also kind of like your parent in a way, while also having a scarily high level of power over your future career prospects. And she was wondering how that was for you and how you've navigated that. Yes, I think that's a really great way to describe it. I do feel that way at times with my PI. I'm very, very fortunate. My PI is incredibly supportive. He has been through a lot with me in the four years that I've been a grad student in his lab, both professionally and personally. So the relationship you have with your supervisor very much does make a difference in terms of your PhD, the support you feel, and, and your long-term goals. There have definitely been challenges more on my end than his end where I'm having problems in my personal life where I'm not sure how much is okay and appropriate to share with him, but particularly with my mental health. But when I think back on the question of what do I need to succeed, if I don't share some of those things, he doesn't know how to support me. So I think you have to really balance that line of oversharing with them, but sharing enough so that they can help support you in the way that you need. Not all PIs are going to be as supportive, and that's really a, a struggle. And if you're in that situation, I would really recommend finding mentors elsewhere. There are other people in your department 
other people at your school, other people at other universities that are happy and willing that want to be mentors to students. So if you don't feel like you have that relationship with your PI, don't fret. Start looking to other individuals that might be able to serve that role and see if you can kind of fill that with a different person. I'm lucky that my mentor and supervisor is the same person, but for a lot of people, those are two different people. I also, as a side note, I thought that their comment was interesting about, you know, balancing their boss and kind of like a parent because my PI actually officiated my wedding last year. So I'm very lucky that he was so supportive. He'd been with my husband and I had started dating when I was a master's student. We got married when I was a PhD student. So we felt like that was a really special honor that he'd been there with us for that whole journey and and to officiate it. So I know that's not something that everybody will get to say, but I feel really lucky that I have such a good relationship professionally and personally with my boss that he got to be part of that special day. And and my whole lab was at my wedding and it was beautiful. So that is amazing. Wow. I'd love to see pictures of that. (laughs) Have you posted those online? Yes. I'll show you after this. Okay, great. So what would you say? Because it sounds like, you know, you it doesn't sound like it's been an easy journey, but it sounds like you're really navigating it well. So what would you say has been your biggest challenge in obtaining your PhD so far? I think the lack of confidence I had in myself as a scientist in the beginning was really hard. And it was because of, I could always hear in the back of my head, the, the people that had told me I was never going to make it when an experiment would fail or I, I would fail a test. Like I'd be like, oh, they're right. Like I could just feel myself losing confidence when things would go wrong and and more and more believing them. But I had to remind myself, and I've had plenty of support on the Instagram science community from this as well, is that everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's experiments fail. Everybody fails tests. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people fail tests. A lot of people don't do super well in classes. A lot of people struggle. That doesn't mean you don't belong. That doesn't mean you're not a good scientist. That means You're just like everyone else going through a very difficult time in your career obtaining a PhD. And so I have worked really hard, particularly over the last two years, to really build confidence in myself as a scientist. And part of really what helped me with that was sharing about my science on Instagram and and talking to people about science. I think the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And that really improved my confidence and made me feel like I am a scientist. Like, that's weird to say, because I feel not like that because I'm 25 and I don't feel like an adult, but I am a scientist and that's what I do for a living. And that's really cool to finally say that five-year-old me would be super proud. Oh, that's amazing. So what's your favorite thing about it then? What's your favorite thing about doing your PhD? Oh my gosh. I love that we're very much on the cutting edge of research. So a lot of times when you get further into your career, your path goes to different ways. You may take like a a tenure track way. You may go into industry. You may do something completely unrelated. And so I love that during my PhD, I'm like I can explore any idea I want and I can just do it. And obviously maybe it's more complicated than that, but like I can have an idea about a project and I can see it come to fruition and then I can write about it and I can talk about it with other people. And that I feel like is something very unique to the time in your PhD where you're not maybe as constrained with coming up with ideas as you could be in in different avenues of your career. So I love that part. It's the most exciting thing. If I'm not interested in an idea or an idea is kind of fizzling out, I can just have a different one and I can explore something completely new. And I love that. It's super fun. Oh, that's great. Well, okay. This brings me to a couple of my daughter's questions. And I told you my daughter's eight and we have your calendar. We have the reinvented magazine calendar and we just turned it to your page and we read it together. She would like to know, she had two questions. Number one, why is your favorite color yellow? Oh, excellent question. Yellow makes me happy. 
And I feel like there's really nothing that's yellow that doesn't make people happy. So I love that. Anytime I see yellow, it brings me joy. And so that's why it's my favorite color. I love that. So many beautiful yellow flowers and sunshine. Yes. And she wanted to know, do you study animals' brains too, like your cat's? Interesting. So we actually do a little bit of that. Predominantly, we study human brains. But when I first started in my lab, we actually published a study that looked at cat brains and that cats actually experience the same type of pathology as humans do in Alzheimer's disease. It's not exactly identical, but it's very similar. And I do get to work sometimes with different people in different labs who study different animal brains. So I don't study my cat's brains, though, because they're still alive. (laughs) Not my exact cats, although it is fun to see all the different ways that they learn. Do you teach them tricks? I do. So one of my cats can high five and the other (laughs) cat can play fetch. And then one of my cat, she doesn't have an interest in learning tricks. So she doesn't do anything. But the other two can do something. But it's probably by choice, knowing cats. (laughs) Oh, yes. She's, She's the oldest and she's a little bit grumpy. She's adorable and super friendly, but she's certainly not motivated to do things that you want her to do. She's only motivated by what she wants to do. And what are your cat's names again? So the oldest is Luna, and then Stella is the second youngest, and then the youngest is Knox. We just got him in July of last year, actually. So he's going to be a year old in May. I remember they were really cute names. Yeah, they're all space-themed or like sky-themed. Yes. Okay. I was wondering about your work with Iowa Neurobank Core. Can you tell us about that? What exactly you're doing with them and what is their overall work that they do? Yeah. So the Iowa Neurobank Core is a brain tissue and stem cell repository. So what that means is after individuals pass away, either those that have a neurodegenerative disease or those that are what we call control, they pass away of something else, they can actually sign up to have their brain donated to our bank. And what that means is that we collect that tissue and save it in our lab so that researchers across the world can reach out to us if they need tissue for a type of experiment that they're doing to answer questions, which is an incredible resource that we have. A lot of research is done in animal models because that's the easiest way to test things before you eventually go to clinical trials for humans. But some questions just can't be answered in animals because they don't always experience the same things that we do. So working with human tissue is such a vital resource for answering bottom line questions is, does this happen in a human or not? So I love that we do that. And then the stem cell repository part of that is adults have lots of tissue like skin, and you can take a small piece of that skin from someone and grow it into stem cells, which is a type of cell that can become any other cell type in the body. And so we bank that tissue as well so that individuals who may have died from a neurodegenerative disease with a specific mutation, we can bank that and then use those cells and see if those cells are different with that mutation than cells from another person that may not have that. So it's essentially a a resource for researchers across the world to have access to human tissue. I think it's so amazing that you're doing all of this work and also that you're so willing to share it with young women and just with the community in general, with your amazing communication skills, your ability to explain these things to me. If you can explain this to me, you can explain it to anyone. So I think it's really wonderful that you're doing this. And one of the ways you're doing it is through Reinvented Magazine. 
doing, you know, working with them and their Princesses with Power Tools calendar. So I was just curious. I was wondering, you know, what that was like for you to do a photo shoot, to get dressed up as a princess or as Rapunzel and to do a photo shoot. What was going through your head? Was that something you always wanted to do or was it just so strange? What was that like? When I heard about the Princesses with Power Tools calendars, I like knew immediately I wanted to get involved. I think the message is so important that femininity and the things that you love are are part of who you are and that doesn't change your ability to do your job. So I loved the message it was spreading and also I just think it's so cool to dress up as a princess who doesn't love that. So I was nervous at first though because I had to wear this princess costume in my lab at my job where I work with my coworkers who don't see me dressing up like a princess every day. But it was really fun. And I actually had someone from the university come in to take the pictures. So it was really cool to talk to them about my research and why I was doing this. And then also just to like be a princess at work. I can't say that I do that every day. So I loved that. It was a ton of fun, though. And I'm so happy with how the calendar turned out. And also just reading all of the stories from the other princesses and learning about their work. People think that when you're in STEM and you're a scientist, like, oh, you just focus on your work and like, you don't find interest in other people's. But that's so not true. I think all of the work of the princesses is incredible. And I love that I had the opportunity to learn about fields that I wasn't familiar with, and hopefully vice versa when they learned about my field. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I love that I'm getting to interview so many of you and learn so much about the different fields you're working in. It's really great. Where can everyone get in touch with you, follow you on maybe on Instagram and also learn more about, well, I'd like for people to be able to check out your photo in the calendar. I don't know if there are any reinvented Princesses with Power Tools 2022 calendars left or not, but you can check out the website and definitely get on the mailing list for next year's if there aren't any more left. But where can people find some photos to see of you just as Rapunzel? Yes. So they can see them on my Instagram account. My handle is the path PhD. So like path like pathology. It's also the same on Twitter. So I don't necessarily have as many Rapunzel pictures on Twitter, but definitely on my Instagram and on also some behind the scenes videos of filming in my lab and what that was like. So check that out. Yes. And of course, just to follow your work in general, not just for Rapunzel, but <laughs> just to learn all about the work that you're doing in general. Well, Kimberly Fiat, PhD candidate and February princess from the reinvented magazine, Princesses with Power Tools Calendar. Thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your journey and for all of your work with disease research. And of course, for inspiring so many young women to pursue a career in STEM. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting with you and hope everyone enjoys the calendar. I'm sure they will. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.